Hello, everyone. Welcome to the ninth episode of Weaving Myths. Weaving Myths is a podcast focused on tabletop role-playing games, and specifically playing them through the play-by-post format. I'm your host, Nathan, and joining me today are Mordai. Good evening. Ruben. Hi, diddly-ho there. And Colin. Hello, everyone. We are all moderators or administrators on Mythweavers, a play-by-post gaming website, and we're here to help bring your game to the next level. If you're not familiar with Mythweavers, you can find it at myth-weavers.com. As always, we are joined by the impeccable text chat, which members of Mythweavers are using right now to ask questions and contribute to the discussion. Today on the agenda, we have Big Bad Evil Guys, GM and Player Burnout, and Part 6 of our Player Archetype series all of which we'll be talking about over the next hour or hour and a half or so. At the end, we'll open the floor to a live Q&A session from the text chat where anyone can ask us anything, be it about Mythweavers, gaming, or anything else they want to know. So, without any further ado, let's jump right in. First topic on the agenda is Big Bad Evil Guys. And villains kind of make up the backbone of any game, or, well, not necessarily villains, but Pretty much every game has a good guys and a bad guys. So curious to see what your guys' thoughts are on villains and bad guys. Well, are we talking villain or antagonist? Could be either one. So I think villains and antagonists, I I agree they're not exactly the same thing, but they're pretty close. So when I think villain, I think your big, scheming, powerful, hand-behind-the-puppet-strings master of a big evil plot is what I think. I'm in agreement. You know, anything from Blofeld to Dr. Evil, though, I mean, depending on game setting, game feel. In my mind, there's a distinct difference between a villain and an antagonist. When you think about Dracula versus, I don't know, say, Frankenstein's monster. Frankenstein's monster could be viewed as an antagonist to some degree, but not necessarily a villain because... Villain, to me, implies intent. Well, you can work with an antagonist, potentially. You cannot work with a villain. Okay, so I'm going to take us off script already. Let's talk a little bit more about antagonists versus villains. What separates the two, mainly? A villain, I would say, you've really got no actual chance to redeem, turn to your side, and his goals are always in opposition to those of the player, whereas an antagonist is against the players, but usually only coincidentally or because of opposing goals that could maybe be reconciled. Or arguably opposing goals that aren't necessarily evil opposed to the players, but differential in the way that, say, opposing nations might experience in a game. I mean, true. If Colin and I both want a beer and there's only one beer left, we are now antagonists to each other in regards to that beer. And I have to write a terrible eulogy for how Mordai died. In the epic battle between... drinking the beer. (laughs) In the epic battle between Ruben and Colin? I suppose he gets the beer while we're, you know, fighting for it. All right, so to bring us back on script, uh, tonight we're mainly focusing on villains. So antagonists we'll probably spend some time on in a future episode, but villains is going to be our primary focus this evening. And I think I speak for everyone when I say when I say that villains are very often associated very closely with the dungeon master. And I think it's people make a mistake when they say that. It's more the DM is playing the villain rather than the DM is the villain. I will yeah, say that line can blur at times. 
Well, I think it's because no player has ever played the villain. It's always been the DM. It all depends on how many characters you have in your setting, but frequently that can be part of the uh, poorly understood quasi-antagonistic relationship between the DM and the players. If the DM is a person that feels like it's their job to be opposed to the players, then it's very easy to equate the DM and the villain as one and the same because the villain is the mechanism by which the DM is trying to defeat the players. Whereas if the DM is trying to support a good story or a good outcome where the players are having fun, then the two concepts are clearly distinct and it's important for the DM to make it clear to the players that the villain isn't just him channeling his omnipotent self into the game. I wonder if some of that is actually a holdover from early editions where the line between GM and player was just blurrier because the hobby was new and it's just a bit of cultural zeitgeist that's kind of carried forward because of that. I could agree with that just because a lot of the memes, jokes, everything you see always seems to imply that the game master's goal is to kill the players. Well, in in the fact that villains aren't the GM, the villains will have motivations, goals, beliefs, vendettas, and such that are vastly different from the game master themselves. And I think sketching those out ahead of time is really, really useful for making your villains seem more real. Sure. I like to think that a villain you should put more effort into than just a random NPC or enemy that the players come across. If oh, if your villain is not fully developed as a character, then they just are just another bad guy that the players say, oh, we just have to kill this guy and move on. Although it necessarily shouldn't be that easy to kill off the villain. If you've built him correctly, he's not just a static piece on the board or on the storyline, but he's someone who lives and grows along with the PCs, possibly in orthogonal directions, but is changing as a character over the course of the story. Sure. So just like how your players evolve and gain levels and become more powerful and accomplish goals... Your villains can do the same thing, even if it's not directly in the sight of your players. Well, and those things they gain don't have to be necessarily levels, personal abilities of the villain. They can also be, uh, they recruit more people, or they just got another new stronghold, or they just got hold of the ultimate ray of destruction and death. Absolutely. The big part about being an effective villain is challenging the players in more than one way. And so it's not just a head-to-head confrontation that is either looming on the horizon or the you know near-term end goal of the game. You have to deal with all of the things that the villain can do through extension of those resources that were just mentioned. If he's got a whole army of mooks, they can go raise havoc in three different places in this in the town, and the PCs are going to have to react to one or all of those. Meanwhile, the villain is free to go do something else. Uh, and twirl his mustache. I mean, why was Littlefinger scary to Ned Stark? It wasn't because Littlefinger could kill Ned Stark. That wasn't ever going to happen. It was because he had so many of our resources and rumors and political capital. For those of us who have not seen Game of Thrones, who is Littlefinger? He owned the intrigue side of the kingdom. Gossip, bad news for, you know, or not bad news, but all the dirty little secrets of various political fingers, Littlefinger was the one that 
had all that information. When you think scheming, backstabbing, spy master, that was him. Pretty much. I mean, his entire motto was chaos is the ladder. Okay, I, I've never seen Game of Thrones, which is probably a sin in this circle, but just for my own knowledge. You're probably happier. Read the books, it'll be just as painful. So I think that ties in nicely to our next point, which is that even with all of these resources at their disposal, a villain can both accomplish and fail at goals. And those accomplishments and failures can make your villain more believable as a part of the story or setting rather than just some nameless, faceless guy that the players have to defeat eventually. It makes the players feel like their actions are actually affecting the world and the setting, and they're actively working to impede what the villain is doing. Those failures are are an extremely critical aspect in my mind, because if the villain always succeeds in whatever they're trying to do up until the players finally defeat him one-on-one, you set up this make-believe Xanatos-type figure where no matter what the PCs do, the villain was always one step ahead of them. And that's, in my mind, unfair, because as the GM, you have more information than the players, so naturally, you have the ability to be one step ahead of them all the time. That doesn't mean you should use it. So one thing I've found that helps with that is when I have my villain, I give them a clear line of where they get their information. So my evil villain, Bob, he's paid off all the urchins, and he's got a couple buddies on the city council. And so Bob's going to know anything that the urchins might know and that the city council might know, but if the heroes go to the police station, he's not going to know that. So if you kind of set up where the villain gets his information from, you can then kind of make better decisions about what he knows about what the players are doing and what he doesn't know. And then you can go into the whole whole theme of, okay, so the players took out this guy's source of knowledge. Where is he going to get knowledge from next? And can the players prevent that from happening by figuring out where he's going to go or predicting who the next person is going to be? Yeah, and that can actually, that's a really fun sort of quest slash mission to set your players on, is denying the villain's sources of information. It's often not something people think about as a resource to deny, but it can really lead to some memorable and fun adventures. Absolutely. And one of the things that you can do as you're setting up your villain and you're considering where he gets his information from or what his resources are is when those resources start getting taken away or that information starts getting dried up, the villain doesn't necessarily always have to act in the most rational manner possible to these sorts of defeats that can open up opportunities for the players to exploit that can be even more interesting than possibly what you had planned in the first place. I mean, yeah, when you make a villain, you just, they have to be fully realized characters. And they have to have motivations, goals, and desires that both inform what they're doing and can be used by the players to disrupt them. Yeah, we've talked a lot about the big villain, the guy at the top, but one of the favorite things that I do is mostly interact the players, that is, mostly create the interactions the players have with the villain through one of the villains called, quote, unquote, trusted lieutenants. Now, somebody who represents the villain in their interests, but doesn't necessarily put the villain in an exposed position where uh, lucky 
roll of the dice could potentially end that uh, villain's recurrence really quickly. Yeah, I mean, villains should act through cutouts quite often. Just it gives you kind of a pressure release in case things go bad, and it also gives you a really good way to give the players victories without actually having the villain defeated prematurely. And those minions, as I'll call them, are can also have their own set of goals and motivations that can potentially be exploited by the players. So if there's a certain resource that a minion has that the villain himself doesn't, then the players can use that to their advantage. For sure, and that's a good way to give players a steady seam of victories while still keeping the villain around. So if you can keep cutting off some of his minions, it denies him one resource, but he still has others to draw on, but the players still get to feel like they won and they hurt the villain. So this kind of goes back to the idea of the villain and the DM being two separate entities, where if you make your villain convincing enough and you have give them these resources and these ways to affect them, it kind of separates the idea of the DM being the villain and lets the players interact with the more of the story rather than it's us as a party versus the DM. I mean, that's one of the big things when you have a villain is balancing the need to keep the villain a threat and active while not frustrating the players with a constant string of defeats, which is why the good cutouts and minions are so useful. You know, well-developed minions with their own motivations and goals can sometimes be turned to the advantage of the players without necessarily having to fight them. So that opens up more opportunities for different kinds of stories than just, oh, we're going to have a go confrontation with Minion A and his thugs today, and we're going to kick their butts and send them packing, and and that will be a, a good story. But if you can say, hey, Minion A, you're working for the villain because of this, this, and this, but we have these resources or this information that will satisfy your goals without you having to behave the way you're behaving, maybe you can get them to turn. And if they do turn, you need to remember to cut off that source of information to the villain. Or maybe the players could start feeding the villain false information. You know, you can also go with the circle of villains route, where there's no one big villain, but instead a loose consortium of collected villains that join together to accomplish some big goal, and that way the players can defeat kind of these villains one at a time, and as they go through the chain of villains maybe they get more and more desperate and start using dirtier and dirtier tricks. That's a particularly good one when you have a sort of intrigue game where there are multiple, I'll say, antagonistic forces out there operating and each one has a villain atop it and they have disparate needs and wants. Sometimes they manage to work together, sometimes they don't. It can actually be an interesting adventure in itself for the players to tease apart exactly how those alliances are working and how to split them asunder. As was pointed out in chat, a great example of that is the Sinister Six from Spider-Man. So another thing I'll throw out there real quick is that villains, so when you see them in, like, movies and books and TV shows, they usually have a certain soundtrack or, like, the tone of a scene changes or... Something along those lines that lets you know, hey, this is the big bad evil guy. He's here now. Um, you can do the same thing in 
pretty much any tabletop game as well, you can let the players know that, hey, people are acting weird, or, hey, you found this object that the villain is known to give to his minions, or just as some examples. But you can do the same thing and kind of clue the players in that, hey, this event is related to what you're trying to do throughout the story of the Even something more subtle like, say, a certain crime is committed the same way every time, and that's always how a certain villain commits the crime. It's actually a good way, too, by using that theme, to connect plots your characters may have thought were disparate together in a way to kind of maybe retroactively introduce a villain where one didn't actually exist. I believe that's called the Red Herring. I did love that a pup named Scooby-Doo actually had an NPC called Red Herring. I wasn't going to go there, but now that it's been brought up, yeah, that's exactly right. <laughs> I mean, it's the basic idea behind most John Williams movie soundtracks. When you hear a little bit of music, it's what gives you the clue that this side's uh, resources are uh, at play in this part of the movie. I mean, to this day, how many of us recognize the tune for Sephiroth, and how many of us can actually sing that right now? I can, but I won't. No comment. Hell with that. Just the Imperial March from John Williams. Oh, man. Yeah. No, I sang once. I'm not going to sing again. That never (laughs) ends well for anybody. It ended well for the recording last time. Well, no, it didn't, because that was never caught. So you're saying you need it to be caught still? we got to have something to put in the Patreon plug. Bloopers are needed. <laughs> oh, maybe later. All right, I'm going to move us along here. So our next our next like subtopic within villains is the actual fight with the villain. villain. Wow, my English is fantastic tonight. And you're the sober one. <clears throat> A good one day. <laughs> so when it comes time for the actual fight with the villain, you want to make sure that you're the boss fight, as it is, is memorable and isn't just some sort of, oh, that's it, or oh my god, we got totally owned by this guy. Um, so how do we go about doing that? Well, my first, my first bit of advice is use the environment. Bosses should never be encountered in a plain white room or in a location that doesn't work toward their advantage. If you're gonna go fight the big elder red dragon, it should be in a volcano that's already erupting and sending out landslides, and the actual environment itself should be just as much of a problem as the villain. I like that mentality, and as long as the players are prepared for that level of challenge where they're going to have to think outside the box of the white room, if you will, then it works incredibly because it makes that battle memorable. That is what you want. That is the mark of the good game is when your players come back to you years later saying, man, I remember that, and that was the best time we ever had. So I'll throw this out there from chat, but Tiffany Corda mentions that Dungeons & Dragons 5th Edition has layers, and layers are basically large dungeons dedicated to one specific villain, and the villain, as long as they're within that layer can take certain actions to make the fight more challenging for the players or more or easier for themselves. So this whole idea of using the environment works really well in 5th edition where there's actually rules for that exact purpose. And it goes beyond that too, where 
some of the layer effects. There's also environmental effects that go along with those that change how the actual environment itself warps itself towards this big villain. The general idea is the closer you get to the heart of the villain's power, which is where you should be encountering them, the more and more that environment is going to change toward the villain's favor and the more and more tricks he's going to have to pull against you just using the environment. Yeah, by the time you've come up against the villain and all of his core resources, there should still be a fair amount left that he's got in the bag. You shouldn't have set up a situation where the players can strip away almost all of his resources before having to go fight him, or he shouldn't allow himself to be set up in that situation. Well, yeah, and those resources should definitely include minions. The more little mooks and minions and and kind of lesser NPCs you can throw in the way of the villain, the more buffer you have for if things go bad are too good for the party. Absolutely. If you've got five minions already in the room and things are going well, there's always a door that can open and a few more come rushing in to uh, level the playing field and make it slightly more challenging. Well, yeah, and if it goes bad, well... You know, those minions can screen for the villain as he escapes. Or we can go back to the environment again, and perhaps something the villain did in preparation for the players to arrive, suddenly, like, the ceiling collapses and lands on some of the minions, and they're dead. Yeah, or he hits some button that supercharges the minions into badasses, and then they're a much more capable force of screening the party if the party is doing particularly well. I mean, basically, the more extra bodies you add in, the more leeway as a GM you have to kind of fix things one way or the other to make the fight really engaging and just difficult enough. It's very important, though, that you give the ability to somewhat predict these sorts of abilities. You don't want to go too far off of the, if you will, deus ex machina set of abilities where the villain comes up with just the perfect counter every time the players seem to have the upper hand. Oh, yeah. I mean, nothing should come out of left field. It should be at least in theme. I mean, a big magical lich shouldn't suddenly be able to heal his minions because undead can't do that, that kind of thing. But a lich could, once he's hurt enough, maybe his head pops off, and just the head becomes a super overpowered version of the lich. In other words, I like giving a lot of bosses an overdrive kind of thing to where when you're roughly half done with a villain, they suddenly get a new form or a new mode of attack that makes them easier to hurt and easier for uh, players to kill, but makes them hit tougher in return so you can amp up the tension and finish things quickly and on a high and dangerous note. I feel like some of the best boss encounters are the ones where the players, they never feel like they're about to lose until the very end, and then they pull it out right at the last second. Yeah, and that's definitely what you want. And I think that's where I like giving them kind of that overdrive, in that now they're hitting harder, they're hitting easier, but they're also easier to hit, and maybe they take more damage. So it becomes a real squeaker of, ooh, we got to get every hit in we can to kill him before he kills us. So I'll point out that this is a very fine line to walk. It's very easy to go one way or the other where the boss is way too difficult or the players are way too powerful. And 
when the boss is way too powerful, there are ways to pull back and bring him more in line with what the players are capable of. You can, I, I hate to go to this stereotype, but you can have the villain start monologuing. Um, I think The Incredibles taught us that monologuing is a terrible idea for villains, but... <laughs> About on par with wearing capes. Hey, it's a stereotype for a reason, and it's a really good tool. Sure, but like, so anyway, the monologue can give the players a chance to recover and cast healing spells, or perhaps figure out a way to defeat the boss in a better manner than they were working on. It's just, it kind of puts a hold on things temporarily, while the players figure out what to do. You could also have, depending on what the players have done, a couple of minions turn on the boss. Maybe the boss just does something out of the question, or maybe the players bribed him earlier. But if you have a couple of minions turn on the boss, that can buy the players a round or two to kind of regather themselves or at least run away. Yeah, it's can be a good opportunity to expose differences of opinion between the uh, minions and the villain. Maybe the villain is of a mind to uh, toy with them, you know, throw them in a dungeon and you know, let them rot. You know, maybe do you know, some of those uh, mustache twirling things like tying them up and you know, dipping them upside down into vats of acid or whatever. But uh, the minions are are being the actual uh, by the book villain of no, nope, we need to kill them right now. And in that type of disagreement, confusion, there can be an opportunity to escape. I hate to bring this up as an example, but. Dr. Evil and his son, Scott and Austin Powers. That's a perfect example of the villain monologues. The henchman just wants to kill the hero. That was the exact scene I was thinking of. So thank you for bringing it up. Get out of my head, Mordai. (laughs) I mean, there's also like, oh, Vader, your superstitious powers. I'll show you the true power of the dark side kind of thing. And actually, religious differences between minions and the villain can be a pretty good out if you have to use it. And if you get really desperate, you can always have the boss call in a few more of his minions and maybe a lieutenant, shout, you're not worth my time, pitiful peons, and have him in Bison out of the scene like it was Tuesday and just have his minions finish up the fight for him and you just play it off of, oh, this wasn't really the final encounter, this was just the warm-up. So that ties very well into our next point, which is that if the fight on the other side is too easy like the players are just wiping the floor with the boss, then you can do the exact same thing. You can have the boss call in more minions. You can have them transform into this next form or uh, power up in some way. Like they finally whip out their uh, rod of doom and destruction just to give the players another round of (laughs) uh, divine dragon slayer says the boss goes super saiyan. And yeah, basically that's, that's kind of exactly where I'm going with that. Man, Orac Draconians, those are famous for that sort of, well, you thought you killed me, but now I'm just going to go berserk on you until you go through my hit points entirely once more again, and then I'm going to explode. Oh, man, Mordai with a deep-cut Dragonlance reference. Nice. You know, in the, the balance of things, I generally like it if my players are having too easy of a job because I think that's easier to recover from from them getting their butts wiped because I think it's a really, it's a lot easier to add something to the fight or add something to the villain than it is to kind of conjure up a way that the players don't die. 
it's just a little less obvious, a little easier, easier to do. And so, and so that's just one of the reasons I tend to like to maybe understat my villains a little bit, just so I can add something at the last minute in theme to make it a little tougher if I need it. That's not entirely unlike uh, many of the stat boxes that you see for monsters where you have a, a progression of challenge ratings so that you can start off with your villain of, okay, I think this is approximately equal to where the players are, but they're having too easy of a time, so I'll take it up to that next level. And if you plan it out in advance, it can be even uh, more rewarding because you kind of have an idea as to what that progression should be and aren't tempted to throw out a power that would be out of character, out of theme. Kanja Wolf points out the villain from Conan. I'm assuming he means Thulsa Doom from the original Conan the Barbarian. I really didn't like how that one went down, but, uh, you know, maybe uh, sometimes your big bad evil guy does need to just get punked to show how awesome your players are. I mean, I'd roll that's really the role of a lieutenant. Throw out that one lieutenant that they can just destroy, you know, it's good for morale. <laughs> Fights against Elder Trollers make me think of Arkham Horror. Man, that game's hard to win. Final Fantasy VI comes to mind. I can't remember how many times you go up against Kefka, and he just keeps pulling something out of his somewhere smarter than you. Smarter than you until he's not. That actually brings up a good point that for some of the some of the best boss fights can be pulled from video games actually where the boss has multiple forms and additional enemies show up um the boss comes up with this crazy attack that the players have never seen before i mean heck even plot twists can happen during a final boss fight where oh i'm not really the big bad evil guy there's someone else that's even more powerful but I find that video games have that structure where the final boss is kind of like the developers throwing everything they possibly can at the player while still having a good experience. And I think we can learn a lot from that. And at the same time, we can also learn from video games what not to do with the villains. A good example being Mass Effect 3, you work a bunch, the heroes gather all these resources to fight the big bad evil villains and in the end nothing they do matters. I think it kind of depends on how you interpret the ending of Mass Effect 3, but sure. We all know it was lazy writing and binary solution sets. Well, I think of uh, the Lord of the Rings and more particularly the parody DM of the Rings where the players are off doing things and if, if you feel that the players are the group falling around Aragorn, suddenly you realize that, well, what you guys were doing was really just a diversion for where the real plot was. And that's that's a type of letdown that's just not appropriate for a role-playing game where really the focus of the story needs to be on the players and their successes and not an overarching theme where the players are a bit part. Yeah, I wouldn't do that. Well, in kind of while we're talking about bosses, I do want to shout out a mechanic I pulled from... Uh, the RPG 13th Age. 13th Age has a concept called the Escalation Die. That when you're in a battle, and I only use it for boss battles, there's this big old D6 that you can put out in every round of combat. The D6 goes up one die. And as the D6 goes up, the monster gets different attacks it can use. 
But the players also, well, everybody in the fight gets that die value as a bonus to attack. And putting some sort of visible marker of this fight is getting worse and more desperate on the table, or the virtual table as it were, and using that to kind of speed things up is really, really helpful. Just making sure that players connect more, players are more successful as the fight goes on, but so are the villains. So you start building this tension higher and higher and higher, and things aren't drug out by a long string of misses. That is an excellent point, because the longer a fight goes, the more it actually favors the NPCs, the villains, uh, in almost every case, uh, every system I can think of at least. A short fight is more advantageous to the players. The more randomness you have, the more likely it is that something's going to go randomly wrong and bad for your players. Just, it's almost as likely that it's going to go randomly really well, but one crit doesn't usually end the fight on the positive side, but one really bad outcome for the players uh, can really swing things because by this point there are limited resources, they're you know, desperately trying to finish off this villain, and a setback of that magnitude can be pretty devastating. It just goes to the point that players only ever have one character. You as the GM have an infinite number of NBCs you can always bring in. I think we could do a whole episode on that, so we probably need to keep moving on down the list. So one thing I'll throw out there real quick before we we move on to the next mini topic is that sometimes the big boss fight at the end isn't really a fight at all. I'm going to go back to it because I know it so well, but in Leverage, at the end of every episode, it's not really a fight that determines whether the good guys won it's more that they revealed to the bad guy that they outsmarted them in the end. And you can do similar things with, like, intrigue and courts of royalty, where you outmaneuvered, you outmaneuvered an opponent politically or socially, and you defeat them that way. So a boss fight doesn't necessarily have to be this giant epic battle. It can also be this very subtle, like, haha, I got you moment. I just love you for mentioning leverage. But yeah, it's a good point. The final boss fight doesn't need to be a fight. It could just as easily be the, aha, Lord Bob, we know you're an evil man, and here's all the evidence we have gathered through the campaign to present to the Council of Lords of your perdiffery. Behold in your downfall, kind of thing. You must have worked on that monologue all night. No, that was totally off the cuff. <laughs> he lied unconvincingly. Okay, so I'm going to move us along. We've been on this topic for too long as it is. Um, we So we were going to talk a little bit about recurring villains and making enemies pop up more than once, but we're going to skip over that for this evening uh, because I'm pretty sure... Yeah, we are up to 45 minutes so far on just this one topic. We covered most of these points anyway. Uh, yeah, we did. Okay. Excellent. Um, if, if we need to, we can come back to it during the Q&A session. But for now, I'm going to move us along, and we are now going to talk about GM and player burnout. And what I mean by burnout is this is more of a concept rather than something you can do for your game. This is something that happens on Mythweavers where a player or a GM, they take on more than they can handle, or something happens, and it causes them to leave the game or 
leave the site entirely for a certain amount of time and possibly indefinitely. Ruben in chat points out that it's not just on Mythweavers. It can happen at the tabletop too, although I think it's a lot less frequent at an actual tabletop. But um, we're going to talk about some ways to handle burnout specifically on Mythweavers. One of the biggest things that you get into with play-by-post is, okay, so the game is slow, slower than I would get at a tabletop, so I'll take on another game, and another, and another, and pretty soon you find yourself with a pile of games and a pile of posts that you need to make, and it's just more than you can keep up with on a day-to-day or week-to-week basis. It is echoing that. It's very easy to just keep adding games without thinking about as the game master, all the prep time that goes in. It's very easy to think you've got all the time in the world without thinking, well, you could be looking at 20 to 30 hours of prep time per game. And even at a post a week, that adds up quickly. Well, it's not even prep time. It's just sheer time it takes to actually physically write a post and send it to the computer. These things snowball so quickly. Being able to edit yourself, which you can't really do at a tabletop when you're speaking in real time, can actually be a hindrance because you get the, the polishing the cannonball effect of, I want to make this post perfect for my players. And the more effort that you put in, the more effort that you put in, and the more effort that you put in, you get to a point where your own quality standards are actually what is making you feel burnt out. So something I've noticed in the past when I've had major burnouts on Mythweavers is that I would spend a lot of time looking at the website but I wouldn't actually spend a lot of time doing anything on it. And I think we've talked about this in the past where you kind of get into this guilt spiral where you go to post, you stare at an empty text box for a while, you close out, you go to bed, you wake up and you're like, oh, I still need to post. You go, you do the same thing over and over for a couple days. And finally, it just gets to the point where you just don't post at all. And spending too much time on the site can lead to that faster than if you very carefully regulate how much time you actually spend working on games. You can work in short spurts, or you can like do one game a day, or it's however you want to break it up. But I find that if you spend too much time looking at the site, then it kind of gets in your head. Oh yeah, that guilt spiral is terrible. I've been there, and the only post that's harder to write than the one you need to move the game forward is the one to apologize for taking so long to move the game forward. Tiffany actually raises a good point, saying if it feels like work, it's probably time to step away and take a break. Oh, yeah, that's so good. It's, that's, yeah, if it's work, don't do it. going to reattribute that quote to Divine Dragon Slayer, but still, it is an excellent point. Most of us want to, you know, if we're in the workforce, work for about... 40 or 50 or 60 hours a week, and we need to sleep for probably about 60 hours a week. We can't be spending 60 hours a week also on the site, or something's got to give. And I'll also mention that this doesn't just happen to people who are running games. It can happen to players, too. Applying for games is, I would say, much easier than actually running a game. So you, what you can do is throw out a bunch of applications, and then all of a sudden you get accepted into a bunch of games all at the same time, and you burn yourself out because you didn't realize how many games you were actually going to get into, and you end up in that same spiral of, I have so many posts to make, but I just don't have the time to do it. 
it's hard, but sometimes you just have to have the gumption to say, sorry, I got accepted into three games at once, and even though you'd like to take me, I'm not available anymore. So speaking of the 40 to 60 hour work week and 40 to 60 hours of sleep, you can also kind of schedule time for Myth Weavers. So just like you schedule when you go to work and just how you, uh, some people schedule when they sleep, you can do the same thing with Myth Weavers. And it doesn't have to be one giant block of time. You can break it up into smaller increments where you say, okay, this 30 minutes, I'm going to knock out one post. And then you go do something else for a couple hours. And then you come back and say, okay, another 30 minutes, I'm going to knock out another post. This gives you kind of ample time to do other things. Like you can go play video games, watch TV, read, ho- read, do homework, go out to dinner. Um, like just, there's so many things that you can do that can kind of get your brain away from the site that keep you moving when you do finally sit down to make posts. Yeah. Variety is the spice of life. You can't just focus on tabletop or play by post games. I get my best ideas when I'm out on the soccer field. One of the other great ways to avoid burnout is to talk to others about, you know, the stresses, feeling overwhelmed, stuff like that, either just to get it off your chest or maybe get some feedback from others that have been through similar situations. Yeah, real-time face-to-face communication or over the Discord is a great way of connecting with people because... You know, let's face it, the asynchronous nature of play-by-post is one of the big draws for why we do it. We don't have the time to sit down for hours and hours and game. But sometimes all you need is a five-minute conversation with someone to say, man, I'm really feeling tired, can't quite keep up, and they can give you that pat on the back or the, the, the idea that you might need in order to uh, get over that hump and keep things moving. Well, talking to people, too, is good because you can bounce an idea off someone. You know, if you speak up in the Discord or on your out-of-character thread or wherever, maybe someone will actually give you some idea that sparks a bit of creativity and kind of gets you over the hump. And that ties in very nicely to the point I was going to make where communication, regardless of what you're doing, is vital to anything you do on Mythweavers, including combating burnout. And, like, we talked about earlier the guilt spiral where the hardest post is... The one that says, hey, I'm getting burnt out. I just don't feel like posting right now. But every time I've posted that, I've found that people come back and say, hey, it's okay. No problem. Take a couple days. Get going. Um, just get your, get your mind back together. And the, the thing about Mythweavers is we're all a community, right? We're all here to have a good time and play some games that we're very passionate about, that we want to spend a lot of time on. And I think I speak for everyone when I say that in the end, we're all here to kind of support one another and make sure that we're all having a good time. I don't think anyone intentionally goes into a game to say, hey, I'm going to kill this game. I don't think that ever happens. Uh, Furthermore, Every single time I've told my players, like, hey, guys, I'm not feeling this, or I need a break, or what do you think? Everyone's always been so supportive. The only time I've ever gotten any sort of grief was when I shut up and kept things to myself and didn't communicate my difficulties. We're all great people. Like, avail yourself of that resource. 
if you're feeling kind of burnt out, ask people for help. We've all been there. We're all totally rooting for you and want to help you get through it. Somehow we need to find a way to, to reach out to all the new first-time GMs that we have on the site and get them that message. I don't know if they're all going to listen to this or not, but if you're out there and you're listening to this podcast for the first time, having just joined Mythweavers and feeling a little overwhelmed by the first game that you're running, you're not alone. We've all been there, and we're all going to get through it. Don't leave. Just get some friends to say, hey, here's some thoughts. Here's some ways to play. Take your time. Play by Post will be here for you when you've got the time and you've got the energy. Don't force it. And just on a personal note, everybody, I respond to every message I've given and every request for help. If you're new, I want to help. And just ask me for it. I'll find the time to answer. I will say, just to plug it a little bit, one of our newer members has actually started a GM mentoring thread for newer game masters in the gaming discussion forum. So, I mean, the community is there as well. There are experienced game masters willing to give advice, thoughts, help, whatever you need to keep you from burning out on what you're running. You want to link that for a bro? About to do it right now. And for those of you listening to the recording, that link will be in the relevant link section of the forum post when the episode goes live on SoundCloud. All right, and with that, I'm going to move us along to our next topic, which is part six of our Player Archetype series. And tonight we're going to be talking about the Min-Maxer. So the Min-Maxer, I want to make this very clear, the Min-Maxer is not the same as the Power Gamer. Power Gamers make effective characters and aren't disruptive within the game. But min-maxers specifically go in with the intent to break the game. They combine abilities, spells, artifacts, whatever they can get their hands on to do completely absurd things that disrupt the game and make it a terrible experience for everybody. Well, everybody but themselves, naturally. They're getting what they want. So how can we help them get what they want? and everyone else have a good time at the same time. If we can all sit at the same table, then we can all have a fun game. Okay, the number one thing that I've that I would recommend is to first of all talk to that player and see if they realize what they're doing. It doesn't I've never experienced this, but I do know that in one of my real life games, I had a buddy who came across a specific combination of I think it was feats and spells and completely broke the game with what they were doing, and they weren't even meaning to. They just happened to take that right combination, and suddenly they were doing things that were completely absurd. So sometimes all it takes is to talk to the player and say, hey, do you realize that this particular combination is completely game-breaking? A big chunk of that is also whether or not they intended it for it to be game-breaking. Maybe when you point it out to them, they say, well, I was doing that because I wanted to have this particular outcome. And you can guide them towards achieving that same outcome with a different combination that doesn't have the absurd side effects. When that happens, talk to them and also find out why they're doing this. Did they have another game where the DM was just awful and used every advantage against them, and now he's looking for every advantage he can because he's afraid of dying? Like, Talk to the guy, figure out why you're doing this, and then kind of go from there. You know, that kind of brings up a point. 
we've talked about this a couple times in the past where sometimes players have had a bad experience in the past and we're not going to talk about it now because we're already running over a little bit. But at some point, I want to talk about how to handle players that have had terrible experiences in the past in general. So just a thought. Sounds like a good thing for episode 10. I uh, know I could certainly talk about that myself. One of the potential reasons why the min-maxer is doing what they're doing is because they like to have the spotlight. And that can lean on some of the other archetypes that we've already talked about, about the special snowflakes. So having that early on conversation about what you're looking for can help you select players when you're at the application phase that are going to complement one another. You don't want to have players that are so focused on their particular time in the limelight that it takes away from the group experience, which is at the heart of what we're doing here. Well, yeah, and a good part of that, too, is kind of noticing the problem before it becomes a problem. If you can kind of spot these players early, you can then ask them why you're doing it, like we've just talked about, and if you can stop it before it starts, well, then you don't really have a problem. I've found that in the past, these particular kinds of players make themselves extremely obvious. If they come out of the gate asking questions about, hey, how does X feet interact with X ability or whatever combination they've come up with, they make themselves extremely obvious even during the application period. They're always the ones that are asking for weird supplements or is this optional thing allowed or stuff like that. That's why I don't allow third-party stuff usually in my games. Depending on the system, third-party stuff can get very, very dicey. On top of that, that also aligns... I'm sorry. And on top of that, that also aligns with some of the other uh, archetypes that we're talking about earlier, uh, where the player is far more interested in just the raw mechanics and not necessarily in the story that's being told. And that's pretty easy to pick out from the get-go. You know, if they're never trying to tie their character into what's going on in the game that you're trying to run, they're not trying to play your game, and so you probably shouldn't bring them in. Well, and it just ties back to, you know, the previous episodes we talked about where picky plays for a game. If all these signs are evident, why are you necessarily going to select this player to play in your game in the first place? Well, there could be a teaching moment here. When you're dealing with a min-maxer, you're dealing with someone who has a very detailed knowledge of the rules and what the options are and what's out there that you could do. You can leverage that. You can use that to help other players learn how to more effectively build their characters. So you can actually raise the competency level and the cohesiveness of the group by having tutoring, if you will. Oh man, thanks for bringing that up. Yeah, totally. So if you can talk with a power gamer, sorry, min-maxer, talk with them, find out why they're doing that, reel them back a little bit, and then get them to help you with everybody else you have turned a potential problem into an incredible asset because almost every single min-maxer is also really, really, really up on the rules. And having a person like that on your side to help out is amazing. I think that's true of most of the archetypes we've talked about. There are a few that are kind of hard to flip and get on your side. But for the most part, like I think it was last episode we talked about Team Rocket, like, they can be an extremely powerful tool for good if you get them on your side. And I think that's true of a lot of the archetypes we've talked about so far. Yeah, I mean, every one of these is just a little bit of a breadth from a really positive archetype that we could totally go into in other episodes. 
but there are limits. If you get someone who thinks that Pun Pun is a great example of a character build that's effective and the only way to do things, run, run now. Why'd you have to bring Pun Pun into it? Well, it makes a good point, though. Min-maxers, they, they thrive on rules as written instead of rules as intended. So setting the expectation for how you're going to interpret rules and explain how rules work can stop the problem before it even starts. So min-maxers, they try to take advantage of the rules, but if you tell them up front that, no, that's not how this is going to go, then they aren't going to do that in the first place. Which just ties back to good communication. In systems where there is rules as written and rules as intended, if there is a difference, spell it out. Spell it out in a thread. Spell out what sources you're using so these types of players can't go searching for the weird third-party supplement that has that one feat that really just makes them too powerful. Not just that either. Also make clear in the game, Ed, you know, how you tend to interpret rules, how you intend to run the game, so that they know in advance if you're going to go more story trumps rules that, you know, that's how the game's going to work, period, not necessarily encounter by encounter. All right, well, let's jump right into the game of the week. This week's game of the week is New Horizons being run by Arcticus. New Horizons is a Stars Without Number game, and I think most everyone will here will agree when I say that Stars Without Number is an underutilized and a very good system for play-by-post games. Arcticus is looking for five players to fill the role of Captain, Pilot, Mechanic, Bruiser, and Psychic. The game will be a Firefly-style game focusing on a small crew that takes on jobs as they come. Arcticus has also mentioned that the game will have elements of a sandbox and space opera, two things that go hand-in-hand on Mythweavers. Factions will vie for power, and wars are breaking out on an interstellar scale. The players will be able to make decisions that can leave a lasting impression on the game as well. To quote Arcticus, if you topple a planetary government, it will stay toppled. If you blow up a shipyard, an economy will crumble. If you miss a payment on your ship, the debt collectors will come for you. I'm a huge sucker for space-based games, and I'm really excited to see Stars Without Number gaining more popularity. New Horizons closes its doors for applications on September 17th, so be sure to get those applications in. And I will throw the link here in Discord. And for those of you listening to the recording at home, that will be available in the relevant links section of the forum post after the episode goes live on SoundCloud. Ooh, baby, this one is hot, 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 so apply now while supplies last. And anyone that makes a mechanic I might have to kill just so uh, my competition's gone. Don't worry, I'm making the psyker. I call shenanigans. You guys picked that game because you're applying for it. I'm not applying for it. Hey, I didn't pick the other game I applied for, so there. I'm just biased towards stars without number. I just thought it was a pretty application. All right, and with that, we are moving straight into the question and answer segment. So as a reminder, you can ask any question you like, and it can be about anything, including Mythweavers. It can be about gaming. It can be about previous topics. It can be uh, about Colin's love life. It can be about Grok the Dwarf Stomper. Anything you want to know, you can ask. But, as always, we have a mandatory question that everybody must answer first. And I want to know... What is making everybody happy this week? We'll start with Colin. I made bullets that are ready for sale this week. 
Ooh, what kind of bullets? 30 caliber, high precision, long range. Perfect for the hand loader shooting 800 plus yards. We need to talk after this. All right, Morda? Well, what made me really happy is, as we were discussing in staff, I think it was Nathan brought up the idea of Weaving Myths does tabletop, where the staff gets together to play a game for our Weaving Myths listeners. And it was an idea that I had one night, probably after an episode where I had been drinking. And uh, I thought, ah, that'll never happen. It's crazy. But another staff member thought of it. So it must not be completely crazy. And I'm looking forward to playing with you guys because I haven't had an opportunity to do so on the site yet. Well, now that idea is also making me happy. That would be awesome. Also, uh, I just got my nephew into magic. And the little bugger beat me using a devour deck. <laughs> it was... Uh, he made a 1717 creature with Devour and then flung it at me. It was the best thing ever. That's pretty fantastic. I'm always happy to hear about a someone getting brought into the addiction that is magic. You know, it's not bad for an eight-year-old. Then he got old Unky Rubens. Uh, I gave him two of the huge pizza boxes of cards. Just dropped him like that many cards. Like, here you go, boy. Here's your first hit. <laughs> That we played Magic last night, and I popped Ornithopter, Grindy Station, and Enduring Renewal, and won that way. Oh, that's just mean. All right, well, then I guess it's well, my turn, it. which means that I get to talk about Dragon Con. So this past weekend, we did not have Weaving Myths because I was attending Dragon Con, which, for those of you who are not familiar, it is the East Coast's version of Comic-Con, more or less. And 90,000 people showed up in Atlanta, Georgia for a four-day convention of nerddom. Uh, Doctor Who fans, Sherlock fans, Star Trek, Star Wars, uh, comic fans, video games, tabletop games. Needless to say, I had an absolute blast. Um, but what's making me happiest is that we there was an entire track, as they call it, which is a group of panels specifically dedicated to tabletop games, and I am super excited to bring a lot of those topics to Weaving Myths in the future, and I've actually updated the future topics list with about 20 new topics that we will be talking about in the future. I'd like to point out, everyone, I did try to convince Nathan to do a live from Dragon Con last week, but he wouldn't bite. Well, to be also fair, I thought maybe I could do the recording, but no... Also, I have one more what's making me happy. My wife and I got our Halloween costumes sorted. We're doing Rick and Morticia. I'm going as Rick Sanchez, and she's going as Morticia Adams. I approve of that. That's genius. Classic. Yeah. Hey, shut up, Marty. Uh, I'm going to do it. She's hot, Marty. I'm going to totally take her, Marty. Look at her boobs. See, the drunker I get, the more character I get. We're going downhill fast. All right, so now that we've answered the mandatory question, let's get some questions from the text chat. So bring them on. We'll answer probably six or seven questions before we wrap up for the evening. I'm just adding value to the blooper reel. Rising Zan wants to know, what is my second favorite color? My second favorite color is blue. Huh. Heretic. I'm with Mordai on that. Mine is eggshell white. Also, I feel like Rising Zan is building a psychology profile on all of us with that question. (laughs) 
All right, Mia Hanoka right. wants to know, why do my players hate me? They probably don't, and if they do, I, I couldn't tell you why. I'd need more more information. Arcticus asks, who's our favorite villain? Ooh, that's a good From one. where? That's all it said. Open-ended question. I like Dr. Evil. Maybe it's just because I like the uh, cheesy B-movie villains. Man, I gotta think. Maybe it's because I've been watching Leverage too much lately, but I really like Jim Sterling as a villain. Sterling always wins. And technically, the writer room actually considered him the hero. I'm going to go with Count Dracula, because if it's gothic and it's horror, it's pretty awesome. I'm going to go with Gold Ducat, pre-last season of DS9, where he just became super strangely evil. Ooh. My wife just reminded me of the uh, one of my favorite villains, who's uh, from the Stargate SG-1 series. Wow. Ooh, good choice. You know what? What about the classic shout-out for Moriarty? Moriarty was a great villain. Not the lame Sherlock one, either. Oh, gripe, gripe, gripe. But yes, the original Moriarty was brilliant. Actually, the elementary version was great. I love the fact that they combined Irene Adler and Moriarty. That was genius. All right, Divine Dragon Slayer wants to know, how often do you use artifacts in your game? I really like the idea of artifacts, but being a new DM, I'm really scared they'll overpower the game. Well, if you give artifacts to your players early on, then yeah, they will probably ruin the game. Artifacts are meant to be like you give one to the entire party, and then they use it like once. So, this is the PSA. Do not add the deck of many things unless you are fully prepared for your game to end. Uh, for me, personally, my favorite artifact, Staff the Magi. But I never introduced it prior to, like, level 10 or 11. And you can't go wrong with a nice plus 5 Holy Avenger. See, I've never considered that a, uh artifact. For me, that's always just been more of the eventual Paladin class feature. You know, I'm having a really hard time picking a favorite artifact. I've very rarely gotten to use them, so it's hard for me to say which one I like the most. You know, I did run an Old Dwarf game where upon first level, the players discovered the Axe of the Dwarvish Lords. And the Axe found each of them sort of worthy, but then informed them all it was their job to find the true wielder of the axe. And the campaign revolved around helping the dwarf people and finding the true wielder of the axe until near the climax, the axe was sundered by the villain, and then they discovered that they were all the true wielder of the axe, and each of them got a fragment of the axe that gave them a unique power. Yeah, I think that's that's a critical aspect there. Artifacts are world-changing. Just introducing one into your game takes the story in a completely new and different direction. You have to be prepared for the story to revolve somewhat around the artifact once it's there. It's that powerful. Yeah, I mean, you don't introduce an artifact at level one. Well, if you do, that's the focus of the game. They're that powerful. And as a new DM, you should be wary. They're super cool, but... Never introduce them just because they're cool. Introduce them because you have an idea that how they'll affect the story. And artifacts have no gold cost. You cannot purchase them. The Unspeakable points out that artifacts can take on different connotations in different game systems. For instance, 
in Call of Cthulhu, you probably don't want to ever see an artifact come out because, well, it's going to go poorly for the players. <laughs> That's so true. And doubly true, in the uh, Zendikar Magic the Gathering game I was running, my players had dozens of artifacts apiece, because that's just what I called uh, magic items. Oh, sure. It, it depends a lot on the setting and, like, the theme of whatever you're doing. So, like, Zendikar is all about exploring the world, finding these hidden treasures that are super powerful or act, or make magic act in very strange ways. So in a setting like that, it's kind of expected that the players will find an artifact or two, or ten, as the case may be. But in more traditional, like, fantasy games, an artifact is something that shows up when the entire world is about to start revolving around this artifact showing up. So traditionally, the definition of an artifact is a magic item so powerful that no one alive, or even in the past several generations, could make it. It is a world-shaking, powerful magic item like a lens lamp that summons the genie or the egg that Koshi the Deathless kept his soul in or stuff like that. Or Baba Yaga's, you know, mortar and pestle she wrote around it. So Reckmond asks, what about cursed objects? Do you ever use those in a meaningful manner? And I love cursed objects because they're easier to throw at your players than artifacts. And they can have absolutely hysterical results. So as an example, in my real-life game just recently, I gave one of my players a sword that was more powerful than what they should have gotten at this point. But the sword took over their mind and at dawn every day randomly changed their alignment to something else. So that had some pretty hilarious results considering that was the lawful good cleric that ended up with that. It's critical to make sure that cursed objects aren't just a penalty or a punishment for the players. Haha, <laughs> I got you with the cursed object. It has to give the player something to have fun with. In other words, if I'm interpreting that right, Mordai, it has to be something that doesn't destroy the uh, party's world from using it once by accident. Well, or even not just that bad. I'm not a particularly big fan of the standard minus one shield or minus one sword or whatever because it's not interesting and all it does is cause the player to suck or the player character to suck, which will cause the player to gripe. And you know, you didn't accomplish anything other than possibly set up an annoying side quest to go get it fixed. So for me, if I'm going to put in a cursed object, it's going to have memorable implications. Or another way to do it, too, instead of necessarily making it a cursed object, make magic items have a drawback. Not something earth-shattering, even something minor, but if you're using it, you'd best be sure you want to use it because of the drawback. Frankly, I'm with Mordai. I I almost never use them. Or if I do, it's because the curse is meant to drive a plot line. Like, I've given the Barbarian a Berserker Axe because... He got so bloodthirsty that I wanted him to realize how bloodthirsty he'd gotten. But, yeah, for the most part, they're just designed to make the characters suck, and that's lame, and I don't do it. I do have an exception for that rule, and it's if I'm running a standard archetypical dungeon crawl. Okay, there's going to be cursed items randomly appearing, just like there are magical items, regular magical items randomly appearing. But I set the player expectation of, 
things are going to get randomly generated, so you best be on your toes and not just try on the first thing that shows up on the floor, because that ring may turn out to be, oh, I don't know, something that causes you to see uh, pink butterflies and yellow daffodils all the time. So the one time I've used, quote-unquote, curse things, in my games there's always a merchant called Honest Bob. Maybe some of you heard my wife saying yes. Um, uh, so Honest Bob sells all this weird stuff, and one of the things he does is he buys all the remnants from all the wizard schools for all their enchanting things that fail. And so Honest Bob sells this bin of five gold piece rings. And they're rings that always have drawbacks. So there's a ring that turns you invisible, but not their clothes. Or a ring that turns your clothes invisible, but not you. Or a ring of you grow a monkey tail. Or a ring of you can speak only in undercommon. So yeah, it's like you can buy stuff from him, but they're always just like weirdly specifically useful, but mostly cursed. And I like those kinds of curses that if a player is really, really clever, they can turn a curse to a benefit. All right. Ryu wants to know, what was your most memorable reincarnation or strangest? Um, I've never used the spell reincarnate, so I don't have a story. Sorry. Badger. I honestly can't remember what I got reincarnated as in the game, but one of the players, a few of us died, and one of the players uh, chose to use reincarnate instead of resurrect, even though they could use both. Unspeakable should have that answer momentarily. Oh, no, wait. No, the most memorable was was a game my wife and I were both in. She had a half-elf bard, and I had a gnome wizard. My gnome wizard was the one that died the most, and eventually the druid had to resurrect me because that was their only other option. And our characters had been dating, which was always kind of the joke, and I ended up being reincarnated as a half-elf, which is the same race as my wife's character, and so it was weirdly kind of cool. Oh, see, that's the nice one. I had one uh, with a dwarf who really, really, really hated ogres, got reincarnated into an ogre. Yeah, man, but the strength buffs. <laughs> Self-loathing. Well, I mean, it was awkward when, you know, we went home to visit my character's family. I'm like, hey, everybody, this is my wife. Uh, also, I'm way too tall for the house now. Uh, sorry, Mom. All right, I think we have time for just one more question. We have had some really great questions this evening, so thank you, everybody, for that. But we will take one more before we wrap up. I saw at least one or two before the show started that were really good that somebody will should ask almost after dark. Almost being the operative word there. Close enough for government work. Nate, what was your best booth at Dragon Con? Best booth? Oh, man. You're asking me to pick between the Chessex booth and, like, the Star City Games booth. Oh, shit. Did you get the uh, the pound of dice? No. Did you do the cup? Oh, buddy. You made me sad my soul. Well, okay. Here's the thing. So I always buy, like, three or four sets of dice while I'm at the Chessex booth. So I try to limit how many dice I actually buy. But specifically, a friend of mine is going to be running a Battletech game for me and a couple other people. And we specifically needed D6s. So I actually ended up spending a lot more money than I really wanted to on D6s this year. But you can pick the cup of dice and just pick the D6s out. It's not that spendy. I wanted them to match. Well, that was your first mistake. (laughs) 
Ruben, if you get him talking about Dragon Con, he's going to talk all night. No. Grok take Reese's Pieces best. Not lie. Like peanut, peanut M, peanut thing. Grok want Reese Pieces. Not made by terrible dwarf thing. Yeah, Reese Pieces. Give me, give me Grok. <laughs> Nudge Brock impersonation brought to you by Ruben after Glenn Levitt 12 year. Alright, to put that into context, Chimi asked, which does Grok and the rest of the speakers prefer, peanut butter M&M's or Reese's Pieces? Grok apparently likes Reese's Pieces. I am going to go with peanut butter M&M's. Heretic, Reese's Pieces all the way. Oh wait, no, I'm sorry, I'm mistaken. I misread it. I thought it was peanut M&M's. No, uh, in that case, yeah, definitely Reese's Pieces. And me, the person, they're both terrible, and give me caramel M&Ms every day. All right, and with that, we are going to move on to the end of the show. So, before we wrap up for the evening, I would just like to take a moment to remind everyone that Weaving Myths officially has a Patreon. We have several tiers of rewards, ranging from us taking your topic suggestions more seriously than non-patrons, all the way up to receiving a free copy of my latest novel. Additionally, when we reach certain monthly goals, we will be be putting out extra content that is exclusive to patrons. Contributions start at as little as $1 per month, so it doesn't take much at all to show your support. The patrons over at Patreon help make this podcast possible, so if you haven't already, I'd encourage you to check it out at patreon.com slash mythweavers. One last thing I should note, Weaving Myths is, always has been, and will always continue to be free. Full episodes are always uploaded to SoundCloud within two days of the episode being recorded, and all normal episodes will always be available for download or streaming free of charge. One last thing I would like to note. I have decided that once we meet the operating costs of the show in monthly contributions, everything extra over that will be going directly into the Mythweavers Fund. I am not going to take a personal slice, and all of the extra funds are going straight to helping the, the website. So if you'd like to support Mythweavers the website, you can also use this Patreon to do that. All right. And I'll be honest. Nathan knows, he knows a lot, including editing out that little earlier misstep, of things to make this possible. Let's not make him spend his money as well. That was a good self-censor there, Ruben. Weaving Myths is made possible by listener support. Thank you. And viewers like you. All right. So thank you, everyone, so much for joining us today. It's been a blast, as always, and we appreciate all of the comments and questions from the text chat. I'm Nathan, and I've been joined by the magnificent Ruben. Lovely to see you people. Mordai. So long, and thanks for all the fish. And Colin. It's been fun as always, folks. Thanks for listening, and keep on weaving those myths.